to do yeah but who but he, you only get paid to do that if it's worthwhile for people to watch it like if That's a right. lot of people are watching you then sure then you can get paid so i'm like who the fuck are these people that are watching this and it's like oh people who are dumber than this guy like oh my god but we have just, a serious I mean, problem you just no i mean like it's hilarious but that's the thing it's like people watch it because it's there you know it's yeah. like people are like hey this is a thing that i am you know led to believe i should enjoy so, I mean, this idiot gets up on there, is like ferociously unfunny, but is just grinning ear to ear and trying so goddamn hard to be likable. It's like, all right. I mean, like, it's not unpalatable, but it's also just like, is this really what you want? Yeah. <laughs> but also, who's watching this, right? Like, how people many of them are boomers. senior citizens people who, with cable. Are, who are slowly, like, losing their grasp of reality <laughs> anyway? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not Dot even turns. kidding. Yeah. Like, it's like... No, you're right. <laughs> Right. I think it's like, these people who are like, I don't know. I mean, like every once in a while, I meet people who express a lot of admiration for Jimmy Fallon. And I just kind of like, <laughs> that's sort of the end of our conversation. And I try and just ride it out. And so we can talk about something else that we can have a meeting of minds on. It's not so hard. I just ride it out. But I'm just like, all right. I mean, nothing you've said even sounds funny in its description. Next it time you should tedious. just say, I'm, I'm on Team Coco. I... Yeah, I'm, I'm not. not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, not either. I'm on I team. Know. Everybody, shut, shut the fuck up. Like if Jimmy Fallon went on stage and was like, "Here, here's a joke. Tonight, I'm gonna end my own life." <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> live television, <laughs> try to stop me. <laughs> try to stop me. That'd be I, fucking then he, hilarious. And then he opens his vest and there's a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Especially considering they pre-taped the show. Right. Be like, yeah. Whoever's decision it was to put this on is also. Great, <laughs> awesome! You guys fucking did it. Like tonight, we're gonna do an experiment in murdering my audience. <laughs> no, I do want to share cool. an experience I had that kind of made me rethink something. How you like, get a murder, <laughs> and you get a murder. Oprah's like, hello, Sorry. half of you will not be leaving. <laughs> be leaving Sorry, go a body on. Bag. She could get away with that. I think. Yeah, oh, um, people would. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I had an experience that made me rethink some of these things. I was, um, when I was in grad school, I went to a conference and I, I had to share a hotel room with someone else in my lab and we were watching TV together and he wanted to watch Two Broke Girls. And he's like a physics postdoc, but he's also like from China, like doesn't speak English that well. And I was like, well, what, what do you like about this show? And he was like, it's the only show where I can understand the jokes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it that has sucks. a horrible stare, like caricature of a, of an Asian person on it. Right. Yeah. It's like a pretty racist show, but it's like the only show where he, like the, sh- it, yeah. the, the jokes are so simple that they transcend culture. Like there's no nuance to, at all. Right. You don't have to have <laughs> yeah, any cultural I think you could understanding. Be mostly asleep. Maybe that's the thing <laughs> found. you could be like mostly asleep and still, catch it the entirety of it that's sort of his time slot too right yeah yeah <laughs> i think if, if you're like lapsing into into <laughs> the dream world <laughs> if your brain is slowly turning into water welcome to the show everybody welcome i'm your host asher lack with me are my co-hosts dr alan sussman hello the honorable sam lazarus Where? and our lawyer Raphael ruttenberg esq good evening 
<laughs> and today we're talking about Blade Runner, 1992, 1992, 1982. Oh, Ridley there, Scott. there was a release in 92. There was a release in 92 and in 2007. A theatrical release? Yes. No. no. Yeah. Oh, no. Limited, limited theatrical, limited theatrical that, that Ridley Scott didn't. There have been seven. Straight, straight to Blu-ray. Different theatrical releases of this movie and seven different cuts. Which we're gonna get into because, like, I went down a lot of rabbit holes, but uh, for the purposes of this episode, we watched the theatrical release, US the original, theatrical? yeah, yeah, the original yeah. U.S. There theatrical release. There was some confusion release. about whether we were gonna watch Blade or Cool Runnings, <laughs> but I think yeah. we sorted it out. So in you the just end. Wa- I just yeah. cut them up and watched them together. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite. I just put them on the Elvis, yeah. Elvis style. I had two screens. <laughs> I just put them on the same time. It's like, I actually really, um, I'm happy that we're wrapping up the season on this. Because this is a wonderful movie, first of all, and everyone should watch it. And it is sort of like, in many ways, the er science fiction movie. Like, we always talk about 2001, which is over 10, 10 years older than Blade Runner, and a lot happened in the intervening years. 2001, I think, is important mostly because it's like, you know, it's the movie that showed people sci-fi doesn't have to suck. Like, it can be good. Um, but it's very, very hard to take. But this movie is, to me, like, much more... I think it... To me, this seems a lot more influential. Um, like this is like really feels like the Earth science fiction movie. Like it has all the elements that we've sort of discussed in every single movie we've done, at least any decent movie we've done. You know, it has the the fantasy element, which is like an imagination of a future. It has like a sort of like technological fantasy going on. It has a mystery within that, like within that world, there are things that are withheld that we don't know that we're sort of guessing at that creates an, an aura mm-hmm. of mystique. Um, it has the paranoia, or at least like the like the isolation and paranoia in different degrees of like man's relation to that future, like living in a future in which our human identity, like the identity of the individual is sort of like in flux, but also just like what it means to be human surrounded by this level of technology. And it has also these philosophical questions attached to it. Like you have the cyborgs in this or the the replicants, how we treat them. What does this say about us? There's a moral question here. At least the question is like, how do we get to the point? We could talk about this more. How do we get to the point where it's like, we found it okay to replicate people it reminded me a little bit of um the kazuo ishiguro book never uh, let me go baby never let me go so Thank good you. i like couldn't remember the title for a second oh please yeah so it's like it's like the it has been already decided in this world like it's there's not a question of whether or not one should have these replicants like that's already been decided and they're considered not people and they're, they're considered disposable and they should be killed yeah, there's no debate in this. Well, and and also in so many ways, this movie basically kicks off the vision of the future. This movie and Alien, I would say hand in hand. This one a little bit more explicitly. I think Alien it's a little more under the skin. Kick off the vision of the future that we've basically been grappling with since, which is like you can call it cyberpunk if you want, but that idea of like a corporate dominated techno quote utopia where there's a huge class disparity. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't even call this like utopian or even dystopian. I, I just think it's just like it is. Um, it, it's a it's a junk future, like it's a future in which like it's dirty. The the, the, the technology has sprawled out of control, and like that speaks to our fears of like what what we are capable of, of creating, and it's like a world which is. The thing that really struck me about this movie is like every single element of it is turned around into menace like the 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 rain is is unpleasant and menacing and like the gloom 
the architecture is menacing. The lights are menacing. It's just like everything has uh, a hostile, anti-personal air to it. Like the even the beings, like the physical bodies in there, are you know it, there's something wrong. You know, there's lots of there's like it's everyone the is stealing sick. stuff. Everyone is sick. Well, and and that's when I say utopianism, I mean that the world of Blade Runner isn't populated or utopian at all by you know happy people, and no, there's nothing positive about the world that we're seeing. But there's a pretty heavy implication that there is a world somewhere else orthogonal to this one that must be the sort of almost like the air conditioned side of the room and we're sitting in like the yeah. exhaust pipe. Oh yeah, well the first yeah. time you see it is when they show up at Tyrell, right? And everything is like immaculate marble and columns and two-story tall windows looking out over these like crazy vistas like Right? But not just that. There's like another planet or something, right? Yeah. Well, oh, that's what I was going to say. Like, because that world that you're talking about, though it exists also in probably, and you see later in twenty in Blade Runner twenty forty nine that it extends through the society a little bit. But like, they're trying to get everybody off world. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like this is this is a bad future to me. This is a bad future uh, where things have you know we've lost control of something. Like it's a you know it's like you find yourself in a place where you know, it's like technology has failed us cool. in that world. It's like technolo- <laughs> it's there. It's omnipresent. I mean, like we have what well, the literal like movie is happening because technology yeah. has rebelled against yeah. its creator. Absolutely, like, like I mean, this like, movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, a world. It's a world of of marvel and wonders that you can like apparently create like real living things with genetic engineering of some kind. Basically, these sophisticated wind up toys that that guy has. I can't remember that character's name. Well, and he comes out and JR. says it. Sebastian. Sebastian. And he comes out and says, like, yeah, I'm I'm twenty five, but oh JF Sebastian. He says, I would be off world if I wasn't sick. It's yeah, he a, said that, yeah. The That's implication right. is basically everybody who can get off yeah. world is strongly encouraged to get off world, which I think has a pretty strong implication about Deckard, which we're gonna talk about in a bit. But I don't know, Alan, any other initial impressions on this one? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting moral implications, like nobody seems to be really in the moral uh, high ground here. I mean, maybe everyone's just part of a something larger than, or at least I guess uh, Deckard. Right? He sort of realizes that this is wrong, but he's doing it anyway. He didn't seem to have uh, many moral qualms with it. But I think it's also interesting. Like this is sort of a hero's journey, right? But but the hero is kind of the bad guy, right? De- definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was my. He's basically meeting his creator. Yeah. That's like a. Archetyp- archetypal oh, you mean, hero's journey. You is, mean Batty is the hero? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, is that the guy's name? Rutger Howard. Rutger Howard. Yeah. 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 Rest in peace. Okay. I like that. Which is part of the reason we're doing this episode now, because I think we were going to save this for the kickoff of season two, but, uh, you know, Rutger Howard died this week, and, and or last week, and we all wanted to sort of throw a piece out because... He's amazing in this I movie. Think, I think that this is like this movie is perfect to wrap up the season because I know I've been talking a lot, but uh, you know Jeez. I just <laughs> I feel sure. I've like I I had a lot of feelings about this movie. So since we started doing this, I've had some like personal personal evolution and my feelings have changed towards how I feel about sci-fi. Where I just I used to feel, like be like very like reluctant. Like I guess I like some of it, um, and I guess it's still the case. Like I don't think I'm in, like an avid sci-fi consumer. Um, where I'm just like I would like voraciously you know go after anything with the label sci-fi and that is enough that that by itself is enough for me to even watch it but 
I think I've grown to appreciate it as a genre more. And like, I've definitely have some feelings about it. Um, and like it's, it's place in our culture and in, you know, in our, you know, collective imagination. I think that in this movie is important because it really talks about the necessity of memory. You know, you have the, uh, replicants and like how the importance they put on having memories and on being on a memories being something that are a part of our person, but also like a part of our collective need, like to have these like collective story. So if you take that and you sort of relate that, so if you go against the background of like pre-industrial revolution, like you have this idea, I've always been fascinated by, by myth and sort of the, uh, like something similarly folk tales. Like these are repositories of our collective imagination. I mean, these are our collective dreams in a way is that they are unreal but they ex- express something just like dreams do. They express something within you, whatever that may be. And they tell a story about what, what is within you. And they take the form of a story and they are reflective of, of who you are. And because they are shared stories, they, ref- they reflect who you are collectively. So I've sort of had this idea of sci-fi uh, movies being something like that where it's like it's our dream but whereas you know myth and folk tales generally take place in the past sci-fi is our dream of the future so we're like in a technical i mean there's a break at some point where it became necessary in our culture to have sci-fi because these are our dreams these are our stories of the future not of the past because we are now a species or a culture really that lives in terms of advancing toward the future and instead of the past giving us the strength of our identity that's a sort of retrograde idea which has you know which is has lost i think a lot of importance we now see the future as reflective of who we are we are conscious of being able to create a future so the future we create is more important to in our some identity. ways than our to our identity towards our sense of ourselves even as individuals because these are not like it's not just a collective it, it is your the, the the locus is the individual within a collective that this is that this resonates with so to me basically sci-fi and this movie really shows that it's like the, the need to have a story the need to have memories but in a weird way the need to have memories is also means that we need to have an idea of the future a story that we can tell or like sort of the, the same thing like without memories how can you even think about the future like yeah. without understanding your past or without at least having some handle on it well said, Ref. Oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah, yeah spot no, I, on. I think this movie yeah. is, is wonderful and profound, and it really made me think about some things about, like, what it, what is sci-fi? What is it? I mean, that's interesting. Us? Yeah, because also sci-fi didn't really exist in... Like, stories about the future didn't really exist before, like, the Industrial Revolution or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, Basically. I mean, like, Utopia, yeah. Sir Thomas More, that's from the 17th century, but... and But it's not really about the future, right? It's just speculative. Yeah. And then you don't really get sci-fi. I'm thinking of like Edward Bellamy's Looking Backwards. I mean, there's like there's it's, and then you get the Jules Verne. There's like fits and starts. Yeah, I would say, but it really doesn't really come into its own until like we really are fully. I I would say much more fully immersed in a technological society, and that happens in the 20th century. I wonder if that's a result of people seeing in their lifetimes technological change. I, I I I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because before that, it was like people were like, well, the future is going to look a lot like right, the way it looks it now. Right, for so yeah. long. Yeah, right. yeah, totally. Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating um, ideas that I've encountered is 
there's I, I know I've mentioned this on the show before. There's this McGill philosopher, Charles Taylor. It's interesting. He's actually Catholic, but he talks about, you know, sacred time versus secular time. And just like the way that people's conceptions of who they are, what the world is, what the place of the mystical, religious, etc., supernatural is within the world, how that changed from the Middle Ages to now. And that, the, you know, that modes of belief, like, you know, you can't, basically what he argues, you can't believe in God the same way now as you did 500 years ago. It just it it doesn't make sense to say that because you you exist right now in secular time, whereas before you existed in sacred time, and they're just like the presence of certain factors that have changed our society, like the technology and industrial revolution, but also widespread ideas of of, of secularism and the other political ideas, the enlightenment, like all that has created like a totally totally different mindset. Um, I don't know if that's the right word to yeah, use. Yeah, where you you're, you're no longer reliant on a priest class for explanations about basic functions of our daily lives, like because and it's, it it's doesn't a, have even have to be about I, class. It could just be about that conception, that con that framing. It's not. Right? Yeah, it's, it's and it's a direct outcropping of of the scientific revolution. Yeah, right. Because it's like as soon as you have the idea of a methodology for establishing truth, and I think that this kind of throws it back to our our episode on the thing. As soon as you have that methodology and that spreads person to person and and it proves to be effective, then all of a sudden, like, <laughs> it becomes very easy to establish a life for yourself outside of needing the divine right of kings, right? Like, you, it, I, I don't know. So, I don't know if that's exactly because I think that it's subtle, but that's, that's a, I think that's a very sort of modern capital M way of framing the idea that there's a priestly caste that is responsible for the information and that is because people don't know any better. It's, it's, I think it's easier to think of it this way. So um, there are a lot of people with, who are obsessed with, the, especially since the Victorians, who are obsessed with the literal truth of the Bible and the literal, I'd say, historical truth of the Bible too, <laughs> which is... Young Earth in, Theory, baby. No, in terms of like the actual Bible... And how it was read for fucking millennia before this, that makes no sense. Hmm. Yeah. So it's like the idea, it's like you go into the desert of, of Judea and like you dig up Abraham's bones. It's like, does that prove that the Bible exists? Does that prove that God exists? It makes no sense to think of it that way. So that is a disservice. It's an insane conception of no, what the Bible is and what religion is. You're more it, fucking likely to find proof of God in a Pizza Hut commercial. <laughs> like, it's just know. like, that's not, that's not what it's supposed to be. It's like, that is a perversion of what this religion is about. And it, by the same token, people say like, oh, you know, f- people have faith in science. Science is its own form of religion. It's like, no. I mean, that's only if your conception of religion is, al- you're, is already perverted by this, by being within a secular mindset that takes that looks at religious belief and religious practice through the lens of a person who's secular and misunder misapprehends and misunderstands it mm. that way but i i don't know if misapprehends it is that way i don't that's a value judgment i don't want to no, i get what you're saying you know? yeah so the, so the difference is that like a secular mindset says that these things should be taken literally versus like uh, the idea of there being a literal history the history that can be proven or the idea that we could analyze analytically deconstruct faith or religion or a religious that text too, for yeah. factual truth about like our just, history it doesn't matter if you think it's true or not it's just the idea that you would think about it in terms of 
verifiable truth. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. The idea of a verifiable truth is not something that is present in in the author in the Bible as it is written in or, the sacred mindset or in the mindset exactly in the mi- or in the mindset that predated right or whatever like the, that the Talmud is. or whatever. I think it's like, interesting yeah, we're going it's, off it's of, about religion because the main thing I wanted to talk about on this episode was the complete erasure of the religious implications of the book that don't that don't make it at all into the movie of, of do Android yeah, yeah, I have none of us have read book. the book for real I'm the only one yeah, yeah. Read Asher, it. I thought for sh- for sure you'd have my back no I've never read this one. Oh, that's really disappointing Asher doesn't read it at a very high grade level it's that's my, true my ex it's a good book. gave me this book and I I never read it it's really good you should read why, it. is that what you broke up with her yeah it's a dumb, what do I, what do dumb I name for a book. <laughs> what do I look like? So many Android words. Team of Electrics Sheep. It's terrible. Too many words for a cover. Like Why should I even open it? <laughs> Android's obviously Dream of Electric Boobs. <laughs> if it doesn't have Da Vinci or Code in it, I will read it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole thing in the book about this religion called Mercerism. And like most people, most of the characters in the book are Mercerists. Um, and basically the idea is... It's a religion tied to a technology. So there's these machines that everybody has that lets them basically hook into a collective sort of dream, um, and it's recurring. And in the, I wow. don't know if dream is the right word. Because that, that really resonates with like some of the themes of the movie. Wait, I'm not done. Profound, uh, it, it'll get no, better. You're done. You're done. You're oh, done. I'm done. I'm yeah. sorry, guys. I guess Cutting I'm Cutting you off. Time for the breakdown. No, I want to I hear this. Oh, oh okay. Um, so in the collective dream, the guy Mercer is like making his way up a hill and there are some people nearby that are like basically stoning him to death. Uh, and this is sort of a Sisyphean, you know, frame here where he, every day people log on basically to experience this death together, this martyrdom together. So you are, you are Mercer. Yes. Yes, like you experience, are, you personally yeah. experience the pain and anguish and yeah. emotional distress of nice. him as he dies. Cool. And the story is that this is an actual person that actually experienced this moment and that somehow it's been recorded or whatever, reconstructed, and that everybody, all the adherence to this faith, mercerism, I don't know if faith is quite the right word, are are perpetually reliving or you know, regularly reliving this experience and that sort of ties them together. And the whole, there's sort of this undercurrent in the book about empathy, about, you know, how the most important thing that man has is his ability to empathize with other creatures. And it comes through a lot in the book because they keep talking about the animals, which is in the movie, but you don't really get the whole backstory in the, in the book, all the animals essentially on earth are extinct and they sort of are, emblematic of you know of feeling of emotion somehow like in other words if you don't have an animal that you can connect with emotionally you like have failed in the society and the very wealthy have real animals and everybody else has replicant animals so the, the sort of the the beginning moments of the book like are the about snake. yeah like the snake and the owl the beginning moments of the book are about Deckard trying to figure out how he's going to get the money to buy a real sheep or goat. I can't remember which uh, for his wife, basically who's super depressed. Um, And so there's this whole context hanging over the whole thing of like, 
you know, everybody, and then there's these little hints that maybe the whole idea of mercerism is made up and there never was a guy. And the this collective experience that they're all logging onto is actually staged. It's not real. So there's this whole undercurrent of like, what is real and how do we maintain a society in which people are empathetic in the face of kind of not knowing what's real? I don't know. It's just an interesting theme that's sort of there like in the Like what's movie. real it's, in terms of like, like was this guy Mercer real? Yeah, but at the same time, like the experience that they have while, while inhabiting his martyrdom is real. Like mm. they do experience real physical pain. They do experience real emotional anguish. So that aspect of it is real to everybody because they're experiencing it. So then, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of loop back there where it's saying that like what's real is what you experience, not what happened. Like it's sort of irrelevant what happened. What matters is what you experienced. And this is a major question that the movie asks, right? right. It's like, I mean, again, and I, I did a little bit of research into like ontology or like the philosophy of what makes real things real or what makes reality real. And it's a, a huge thread throughout all of Philip K. Dick's writing. Um, yeah. I'm sure we'll do Total Recall at some point, which deals with that a lot. Yeah. Um, to some degree, it's in Minority Report, but really I think that Minority Report just dips its toe into that. It's more like what will be real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, but again, exactly, like they're treating these crimes as though they are real, even though they haven't happened. They're not based on intent, right? right? They're based on yeah. it will and happen. In fact, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but the changes that are made in the final cut of this movie very heavily underscore that that idea right put the whole narrative of the movie into question kind of oh really we're going to talk about the different cuts because i think that the different cuts are emblematic of a much i don't want to say problem because i love this movie a lot but i think that this movie was made by accident like i don't think that ridley scott intended to make this this degree of like a meditative philosophical movie about these things he i think, wanted it to, to be like a future noir yeah exactly and a i future think detective noir yeah yeah and and like there are certain the differences between these cuts and actually i'm really glad that we watched the theatrical cut because i had actually never seen this yeah, one before yeah. and it was although i don't really like the voiceover in it it did accomplish a few things which were shockingly good to the movie as a whole to me. And it was the most enjoyable time I've watched this movie. And so should we break the plot down? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. How does this show work? So I I want to break the plot down, but I wanted to break the plot down in the context of what Alan said, which was essentially that like, it's a Jamaican you, bobsled team. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting vampires. Yeah. Three um, seconds of pass. So I, I wanted to break the plot down, but while breaking the plot down, I wanted to throw it back to something that Alan said, which was essentially that like, if you're thinking about this as a hero's journey, you could make a much more compelling case that Roy Batty, Rucker Howard's character, is the main character of this movie and that he follows a much more structured classical hero's journey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So we'll try to take some stops along the way to point out places where the different cuts of the movie have given you different information. There's really only one place where it matters. There's okay. Well, we'll discuss two. 
Yeah, so essentially we open on a world where a man is being interviewed and they're trying to test whether or not he is a replicant. Yeah, and in the theatrical version, you actually get the voiceover right at the beginning that explains what replicants are, you know. Yeah, the world we're living in. Copies, kind of. It's interesting. I saw a thing about there were some editions where the opening crawl talks about them as machines. Yeah. Which they don't do in the version we watched, right? They're like... Actually, yeah, I was confused about that. Like, the word replicant is actually really perfect. They basically build human beings artificially, but they are human beings. They're not robots. They're not mechanical. Really? They're not mechanical at all, because when when he... Because then you could just tell, be like, where... where Right. yeah. Yeah. There's something about... I can't remember where I saw this. It might have been from the book, but the only way to tell the difference conclusively is with a bone marrow test. So oh. which implies that there is essentially no difference, no observable difference biologically between the replicants and humans. But in the movie it's not I feel like it's not that clear what they really are. I like mean it's you says know that they're the very crawl. very similar to humans. Yeah, right. Like yeah. you know that you you sh- they sh- you should feel bad. But you also know that killed. they are biological entities. And they're bi- and they're not machines. Well, they're like part I wasn't clear to me if they were bi- totally biological or like cyborgs. Yeah, I mean, they talk maybe. about it through the movie a bit about because they never talk about building components. They talk about genetic they talk engineering. About it a few times. engineering. Well, yeah. and and also like in, in a way they do though because then you have the guy who who makes the eyes. Yeah, is a yeah, but those are cloned eyes. Yeah. So cloned eyes. Yeah. Okay. And well, well and the other thing is totally is totally well they're engineered, but like I think what makes it clear is that the test that they have for whether or not someone is a replicant, which we see in the opening scene is a series of moral questions. Right. right? And, and so the, more the, like empathy questions. Yeah. Empathy questions. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, we could dig into the difference between morality and empathy all day. Uh, I think that's I don't know. a little bit of not, day not really. Day, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's pretty clear. Cool. <laughs> Good vibes. Um, different words, different meanings. Yeah. So I fucking hate you guys. Um, yeah. So over the course of this test, it becomes clear that the the test subject is indeed a replicant. He can't respond to these questions. And so he ends up shooting the tester. But I think if there were metal Let me components... Let me tell you about my mother. Yeah. yeah. Boom. Obviously, it's super Freudian. Um, <laughs> right. Cool. <laughs> Wait, isn't... Sorry, so please continue. So we're introduced to Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, who is brought back to serving on the police force after he's ostensibly left, and we never get a real clear reason why he left behind. I guess he says he was sick of the violence and like having to, quote, retire a bunch of replicants that he really didn't... It, it took yeah. an emotional impact on or it took an emotional toll on him. Um, so we get pulled back in and here in his initial conversation with the police chief, this is where there's like a huge difference in the different cuts and, and it does make something of a difference in Mm. the different versions of the movie and the different meanings of the movie. And the, the difference is, well, first of all, in the different cuts, they mention a different number of replicants that have escaped and that are on earth, right? So the original theatrical cut has six replicants one of whom dies on the way, leaving us with five on Earth. And then the police chief goes on to say, it's your job to find these four of them. Did you guys Wait, catch that the, in the that scene? Five and four? Yeah, he says both five and four. He's like, there were six, one of them died, your job is to get the other four. 
Hmm. And I remember thinking for a long time, like, what the hell? Like, why is that missing? So it turned out that that was just a mistake in the screenwriting where there was a draft of the script where there was another replicant that they ended up cutting. And so... In the book, there are six. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And so that they took out for later editions and then put back in. So there's like, again... It's just bad editing. So we have Baddie, Pris, Pris, Pris. Leon, and Zora. And Zora. Yeah. Those are the four replicants that I, I, I happen to be reading off of IMDb. And Leon is the one that we see killing the the interrogator at the beginning of the movie or shooting the interrogator. We yeah. find out that he survived and is on life support. So this was the other thing. And again, there there have been a lot of people floating the theory that Deckard, Harrison Ford's character, is a replicant for many reasons. I would say that this edit of the film was the one that presented the most compelling case for him being a replicant. And well, I'll Okay, fair enough. We're gonna Sam and I are gonna get into this. Because I actually, this was the first time, I had always thought that that was just sort of dumb speculation. And then this time it actually hit me really hard for one very clear reason. And the reason is, there's no fucking reason for him to come back to the police force, but the police chief clearly threatens him. Right? If you guys Mm -hmm. rewatch that scene, Bryant, the police chief, says to him, you know, if you're not one of us, you're the little guy. That doesn't mean anything. It's like, oh, I'm the little guy? Like, okay, great. See well, you later. No, I mean, I. that could also just be like a reference where we were talking about before about getting off world. Like, if you're not with us, then you're off the list. You're not going to get any of the benefits that our society has to provide to the people that aren't the ones that we've discarded. You know, that's how I read it. I don't know. I guess I don't know. What did you did you guys have a view on this? Is this something you guys so had heard the about? The only thing that that um, triggered that idea for me was when Rachel asked them. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you ever taken the Voight Kampf test? I mean, that's one. There's there's a huge amount. You know, just to fast forward at the end of the movie after he's done, you see Edward James almost character says to him, "Congratulations, you've done a man's job." That was one. There's a few different quotes here and there. The thing, I mean, maybe this will kill the whole conversation, but the thing to me that makes it super obvious that that's in the text, because all the things you were just talking about, like particularly the first one is just an editing, an editing mistake, right? Yeah. But in general, these are all things that we could just be projecting our intention to find that meaning in the movie onto those aspects of the plot. But the thing that really drives it home for me is in the final cut they restore the dream sequence. So you guys haven't seen this, uh, and I believe it's in the book as well. It's The dream sequence is in most of the cuts other than the original theatrical release, and it was filmed originally and was cut out. Right. Um, um, which what is you, the dream? I, I, the dream I don't sequence is not super sequence. important what happens in the dream. The thing that's relevant to this que- this conversation is that there's a unicorn in the dream. The dream sequence there's has... An origami unicorn exactly. at the end. At the end. Exactly. Yeah. The implication being that his memories are yeah. almost his character is insinuating that Deckard's memories are implanted because he knows about the dream. He knows that he's been seeing a unicorn in his dreams. Ah, oh yeah. yeah. And the unicorn. So, so you're saying he, that the, the, implication, the original implication of the final was cut that is that Deckard's a replica. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's implied. And the, the other thing about that is um, that the unicorn is a pretty clear reference to the horses in uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris. 
it's the dream Whoa. that Deckard has is of like a white horse or a unicorn running in a green field, but it looks so similar to the the horses at the mm-hmm. beginning of Solaris. Anyway, but I guess he, another th- reason you might think Deckard is a like I I guess the first time I thought of it was when you know you see these replicants and they have these photographs like they have these uh implanted memories and then these photographs that they carry around with them that like are, are supposed to be like moments in their past and then deckard also has these photographs that he's looking at right so that's also like a parallel i think where you're supposed to think maybe yeah but like he, they the the narrative can be drawing a parallel without making the implication that he's one of them and i think it actually changes the message of the movie like if he's mm. human but you see all these parallels. Yeah, I mean, right? then that's saying yeah. these these creatures that aren't human really should be are are equals. Like, yeah, I think ethically, you, I think you morally. Can, I think I thought both things. Yeah, like, you know. I mean, I, I think it's better if it's a little ambiguous. Yeah, I think it's just I think it's just supposed to be ambiguous. I mean, maybe that's why it was taken out. Right? Is it's just you know I think, supposed to be more ambiguous? Yeah, my guess would be that the studio and leave people wonder, studios wonder. always don't want an ambiguous ending. Right, they just assume that a, cl- a nice, neat bow is better for American audiences. Yeah, I mean, so some of the other evidence that implies that he's a replicant. Oh, sorry. Wait, so you're saying it's less ambiguous if they because t- it seems like it's more, it's less ambiguous if you leave in the the dream sequence. Yes. Right. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm saying that without the dream sequence, there's not any obvious reason to even ask the question. Right. It, which is funny because this was the first time that I ever found myself asking the question, having seen it only with the other cuts before, with the dream sequence. Interesting. Yeah. This and and the other reason that that really underlined it for me was just that opening scene with Bryant, which is longer than it is in other cuts. I think uh, when he ends up capitulating to Bryant, the exact words he says are "I have no choice," which is like. That is crazy to me. And and I was like, oh, okay, you're definitely a replicant. Like, you serve at the pleasure of these people. You have no choice. He says, I have no choice. There's no reason for him to go back. And, I mean, maybe it's just boilerplate, you know, like film noir stuff of like, I've got a job to do. I've got no choice. I hate this job. I've got to do it. I don't know. One thing I, know, I, I liked about this movie is, like, sometimes the movies have, like, very particular... Uh, things amount them like very interesting particular stylized stylistic choices this one um with the way the, the way the dialogue is the way it's kind of just like it's sort of hard-boiled like noir but it's not quite it's just like very everything's very blunt um everything is very it's almost like a little stilted in a way um i don't know did anybody else notice that yeah, it's definitely it not naturalistic dialogue. Particularly yeah. the narration. Yeah, particularly yeah, the narration. bad. But yeah, I mean, like the, the, it just seemed like everything was like a little robotic. Yeah. The, narration. Like the replicants didn't seem that weird because there's something off about the way everyone was, was delivering their lines. I, I, I mean, say. it's interesting. Hmm. I think the only character that you meet that actually has like a rich emotional response to the things happening in the movie is uh, Sebastian, right? Like everybody else is either you only get a brief picture of them, right? Like the the police captain. Yeah. Or like essentially acts like what, you know, I would say automaton, but it's not quite right for this. Acts like a replicant. Even Edward James Almost's character. Well, I, you know, and I kind of wondered a little bit if 
all of the police, I'm putting in air quotes, like all of the Blade Runners were replicants. So and that is exactly what happens in the book. Is it all of the cops are replicants? Which I, is, if I'm remembering correctly, you find out that his whole unit is actually replicants which, programmed <laughs> to hunt replicants. Yeah, which is like, that's so Philip K. Dick. Of, of just yeah, like, And the right. cops are also the people who are selling the psychedelic drugs <laughs> right. to the criminals yeah. that they're hunting down. It's, you know, yeah. Um, but to push forward with the plot, essentially, Harrison Ford is contracted to hunt down these now four replicants, and he goes on this journey, and they're sort of a new top-of-the-line model, right? They're the Nexus 6. And he's sent to interview another replicant at the head of the Tyrell Corporation. This is really interesting to me as well, in that Ridley Scott has given us two sort of like towering sci-fi corporations that kind of cast shadows over the whole idea of what we think of as like the cyberpunk future of both the Wayland Corporation and um, here the Tyrell Corporation. Wayland yutani I think is what it's called from the Alien movies. Mm. And they're, they're both so similar, right? Like they both posit such a kind of like corporatic future. Is that a word even? Sure, corporatocracy. I think it's a neologism that makes sense. Yeah, of of just sort of like we've outsourced essentially everything about governance to companies. So like really the the seeding of space with life is entirely corporate, right? Like Tyrell is doing all of the work off off world. It's not it's not like you the know, government of New China is, you know, colonizing. It's Tyrell. It's Elon Musk. I always think yeah, about exactly. the British uh, West India Indies Company, right? Like one of the first crown corporations. Yeah. Or I guess not first, but one of the early ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like these stories, particularly Alien, uh, but this one too, I guess, it really feels like that. It feels like the society that the, the story is happening in has given up on like political agency and has replaced it with... I mean, it's happening now too. Replaced it with with corporate interests, and so then now you have this like corporate entity which exists sort of with the permission of the government, but has actually supplanted its interests in most contexts. Right? Yeah, and then that's just that's baked into the cake. It's not the movie is not about that. It's this is just part of the background. Was really right. interesting. To like me. you never see anything in in Blade Runner that isn't obviously under the aegis of. Tyrell exactly which is fucking mind-blowing right like the police I actually think uh, maybe I miss miss see miss saw it but it seemed to me like a lot of the city that the movie takes place in is like under the Tyrell pyramid (laughs) yeah it's like the Tyrell pyramid casts a shadow over all of the slums that we're seeing these Blade Runners like and like there's a couple shots under under, like literally literally under under? there's a couple of shots where you see like kind of regular city buildings you know like for instance the building that the replicants are holed up in like look like could be a building from sort of our time but then as as the camera is looking down the street you see these like more futuristic towers that are disappearing up out of the frame Mm -hmm. so i mean like is the pyramid is the choice of a pyramid i mean these are images which are really uh like profound and uh, sort of indelible like you know the, the 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 look of Blade Runner really sticks with you and what's a pyramid a pyramid in, in is in Egypt anyway a, 
a tomb for a living God, a, a God made That's one human, a God on earth. And um, you I've can sort of theories. like, what's that? I've heard other theories. Oh, that they're grain silos? Or batteries. Or they're batteries. <laughs> we power the spaceships, <laughs> man. Eric Von Daniken, man. Chariots or of the like, gods. Yeah. Ch- chariots of the gods, they're my artifi- dude. They're artificial ski slopes <laughs> for aliens. Yeah. Come on, Scoob. I've got it. I mean, the, no, the inside good. of the pyramid also has a, sort of an Egyptian vibe, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's sort of like that way. yeah, definitely classical. Like it's not quite Egyptian. It's like we like Egyptian aesthetic, and we went from there. But it's also there's some Greek shit going on there, and the temple's shape itself is like more like a Mayan pyramid. Oh, is you it? Know? Yeah, it's like stepped. <laughs> there's kind of. at all. no, there is some Egyptian stuff in his apartment complex as well. It's like a neo kind of like Art the Deco owl. reproduction of Egyptian. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's yeah, what I'm saying. like arabesque. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean stylistically, yeah, like the the Art Deco noir futurism. Uh, this movie is unbelievable. Visually, it is out of control. But that's yeah. also meant to evoke, right? That, like, if you think of the pyramids, what do you think of, like? millions of slaves building the pyramids yeah right yeah yeah and like incomprehensible pharaoh powers. with right like, yeah but is the god is it tyrell or is it is there irony is the god actually batty yeah Rutger that is that's a great question yeah. so so yeah uh, so we have harrison ford sent to find these four replicants <clears throat> and he's tasked with interviewing another special i'm putting in air quotes replicant at the Tyrell Corporation, and he goes and interviews. It's a bait and You're switch. You're putting it bef- cart before the horse. They he frames Tyrell frames it as, you know. But have get you ever baseline. used it on a human? Yeah. Like, are you sure that you don't get a false positive on a human? Yeah. In the book, they follow that a little further down. Like, they at first he's convinced it's just a false positive. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um. Anyway, so. So Harrison Ford interviews Sean Young, who is going to be the sort of femme fatale, and she hardcore fits the the film noir uh, love interest. Especially that hair. What's her name in the movie? Shoulder pads. Her name in the movie is Rachel. Rachel. Um, Which did... She is such a Rachel. (laughs) I thought she was more of a Monica. (laughs) Um, I thought she was more of a Chandler myself. (laughs) I hate you, Sam. Thank you. So after interviewing Sean Young... He f- he goes to the motel, the hotel room. Oh yeah, That's where right. the replicants were the living. Photos, yeah. Okay, cool. And then he finds, he also, yeah, he oh. finds a snake scale. Yeah, right? exactly. He finds a snake scale, which leads him to the like snake cloning part of town, which I love animal, that animal cloning, the cloning district. Yeah, the cloning <laughs> district. Well, something that us. happens before oh, that. The cloning district. Rachel shows up at his house before that, and they have a very complicated interaction where she's like. You think I'm a replicant, but I'm really not. And it's like, sure, darling. Yeah. It's and then he basically proves that she is. He, yeah. He does. No, because by he, knowing her memories, he knows her memories that he, she's never revealed to anyone. Oh yeah. 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 And then, do they kiss in that scene? No, that's later. I think their relationship is super fucked up, right? The yeah, sex scene weird. is pretty weird. It's yeah. it's it's, <laughs> it's not, not consenty. It's not consenty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's like. And also, he has this sort of, like, innate power over her in that it's like, yeah, I know that you're here. They're actually hiring me to murder you. So, like, uh, we've jumped ahead in the plot. But anyway, she runs away from Tyrell and ends up at his house. But And then gets added to his list. Of, yeah, well, people you've got to kill. Um, well, 
not people. People, right? Replicant people. Yeah. Subhumans. So he replicants are made of people. <laughs> <laughs> so he successfully tracks nice. down one of the the replicants to a club where she's dancing with a snake. And they have a, that's again, another like unbelievable. Dancing quotes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even use the word dancing. Fake dancing. <laughs> um, Alan and I had a big argument over what constitutes fake pretending to <laughs> pretending dance. Pretending to dance. Yeah. God damn it. Because Alan was going to a. I'm having a lot of trouble figuring out what that would be, Alan. <laughs> dance, yeah. you dance show us party? fake dancing? Could you show us pretending Pretend uh-huh. dancing? Yeah, let me it's show you. Dancing this will be good listlessly. audio content. Yeah. What do you think? That looks like pretending not to dance. (laughs) This leads to another pretty iconic scene where he locates the replicant Zora and she beats the shit out of him and runs in a clear Mm -hmm. raincoat, (laughs) which is... A clear raincoat with basically underwear on underneath. Yeah. Yeah. But like her... Is she wearing a bra? Yeah. Yeah. She is? Yeah. Yeah. Her outfit is so cool. That scene where he's chasing her... It's more like a boob shield. Yeah, something. it's like a top cod piece. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But she does take off her clothes and get in the shower. Yes. Yeah. She's, yeah. And okay. then... So he, you can see everything. He <laughs> ends up... <laughs> cutting all this. No, you're not. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he ends up shooting her, and then he gets stopped by Leon, Leon's the replicant. Leon's like a brute. Like he's like dumb, and he's built to fight or something? I built think he's smash. built to move stuff. I think oh, Roy okay. Batty is the combat one. Roy Batty and Zora. Oh, okay. Yeah, Zora, Zora I think is actually a political like an assassin, a yeah. political assassin, which is a weird little yeah. aside. He's yeah. like Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Beauty and the Beast and yeah. the Walsh. Yeah, I'm a fat cop. I'm a, f- I'm a fat actor. <laughs> a well-known fat actor. <laughs> well-known fat ass. <laughs> Widely despised fat ass. Edmund Walsh. <laughs> Come um, on, guys. So basically Deckard with with the help of Rachel kills the two replicants because Leon is about to ice him and (laughs) (laughs) you got iced bro (laughs) the the reboot of this movie is that (laughs) Smirnoff ices poison for replicants as they find out that's that's the new void comp test is just drinking a Smirnoff it's like Let me tell you about Smirnoff. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Then Decker takes... Attack ships full of Smirnoff ice <laughs> on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Oh, God. That speech. The, yeah. the phrase off the shoulder of Orion makes me a little crazy. You're a jerk, Sam. That's amazing. No, it's a great line. It's poetic. But it doesn't mean anything. Well, you don't believe in astrology? This is going to be the longest episode we've ever recorded, which I guess is sort of appropriate because you this mean movie is the probably the most we've ever recorded for an episode. I hate you, Sam. <laughs> I fucking hate you. I've, I've seen Sam on fire off the shoulders <laughs> of Orion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, so let me just wrap this up here. Yeah, let's let's so, push. Um, <laughs> Batty right. and Pris are trying to not die because all I don't even know if we mentioned all the replicants have an expiration date. Have a four-year lifespan. Have a, a pro, yeah, or something like that. Not um, all. Part of, the, part of their process, part of the, uh, the hero's journey that they go through is finding people who can give this answer to them. And they find this guy who's like, you know, uh, this character who has this house full... He lives alone. He's this house full of like these genetic toys that he's created, like ballerinas, or, ballerinas who don't seem to, li- to be able to do anything. Um, he admires. It's I think he knows early on that they're replicants, but he admires them for their beauty. Uh, he's kind of melancholic, and they convince him 
or th- threaten him, convince him. It's sort of unclear. Actually, it's it's interesting how it's sort of this is, and I I see what um you know J F like I see what Sam is saying about this being an interesting character because it's his motivations are kind of shrouded. They wind up take he winds up taking them. He has an ongoing chess match with then, Tyrell, the with head Tyrell. of the Tyrell Corporation. Another like fantastic conceit. I don't know if this is in the book, but it's just so imaginative well, that he goes to him. He's like. He's like, uh, you know, he, with a chess move. He says, yeah. And, and actually, that's a famous chess game. That that oh, really? match, ah, those okay. moves that they read off is like a, yeah, it's it was the finals of some, you know, famous chess match I read about that. Yeah, and it, the, and, Batty of, uh, and Batty is doing the moves for him. And, you know, he at first is like upset that Batty's doing these moves and then he like becomes aware that... It's actually how he's going to win the game is relying on this like this super intelligent superhuman intelligence. And Tyrell knows that it's Batty making those moves. Does he? He says oh, really? that when Sebastian shows up, he was like, he, "Oh yeah." He doesn't know it's Batty. He just knows it's not Sebastian. Well, Sebastian oh, really? comes to him. I'm sorry. I'm like so, yeah. <laughs> hijacking, hijacking it back. I mean, thank you for getting me out of the doldrums of my own idiocy. Uh, it's a, it's a repeated effort. It's it's <laughs> yeah. It's it's a twenty five year task, and it's yeah. not even close. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure. Batty and JF Sebastian show up at the Tyrell Pyramid, and Batty gives Sebastian the move, and Tyrell immediately looks at the board and realizes that that Sebastian is working with something or someone, and he brings, you know, he says, "Oh, why don't you come upstairs?" And Sebastian fucking brings Batty, which he is... He should have used Chessmaster 2000 for my thing. <laughs> yeah. It's too bad. Uh, okay, yeah. Too bad has got just, whiskey all over it. <laughs> I wanted to just jump in really quickly to say that Sebastian in the book doesn't exist. There's a slightly different character who is like, in a lot of ways, very similar to the Sebastian character, except instead of being like secretly a genetic engineering genius, he's just an idiot like um you know damaged by radiation like a dimwit and so no there is no connection to oh, okay. in that way that's well, totally in the Ridley movie. Scott very imaginative director yeah and i think we can we can give some credit to the screenwriters on this one which scott didn't write the screenplay um whatever just some credit i don't know how movies yeah. work Batty corners uh Tyrell and Tyrell explains to him and seemingly convincingly they have this discussion over what can be done um, and it seems like once they set the gears in motion of planned obsolescence of the replicants, there's nothing they could do about it. Which is... And they've tried, apparently. Amazing. I don't yeah. know. What did you guys... Alan, what did you think of this scene? The scene when Batty realizes that there's no solution. He essentially, in terms of hero's journey, he completes his hero's journey. He has met, you know, right. the deity. And the deity says, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for you. I, Yeah, I don't know. What did you You're think? I just I, because <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't know. I wasn't in the movie with the most pa- most pathos. Mm. I wasn't really surprised. I've, I've seen this movie before. So maybe but that's, that's part also of it, super but I feel obviously like his goal, right? Like ultimately, I think we. I think we're allowed to feel for Batty. I think we're allowed to say like this is this is yeah this is tragic that this happens that this person, you know, who is you know seems you know like they they would have a good ending to this that they would be able to fulfill this dream even though there's like something very menacing about him he's had this, this teutonic look he's a killer but he wants to live he wants to be alive and they were given all these hints of like he loves Pris. he you know is able to form alliances and friendships with people he wants to avenge 
his dead friends. He has, uh, you know, uh, he commiserates. He has like feelings of community with these people who are also persecuted for the same reason as him. And we're allowed to feel bad that this is his fate. Um, and we do feel like it's weird ambiguity. It's like we, we, we feel the anger for this person who's ostensibly the villain and the, and the sensible hero or anti-hero, whatever he is, Harrison Ford, Deckard is chasing after him. We don't, uh, it's not particularly sympathetic, you know? No, he doesn't. I mean, there's no reason for him to kill Pris, which he does in another iconic scene in which she's like flailing on the floor, like, you know, almost like, like a, 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 a malfunctioning robot, which is really freaky. Yeah. And then the incredible scene of like Rutger Hauer running, like sprinting around with his shirt off. Howling. Howling, yeah. Putting a nail through his hand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so A little Christ-like maybe. Oh. <laughs> what we didn't say was that Rutger Hauer, in the sort of anger of this discovery, kills Tyrell in a fucking brutal way. Skull crushes him. Yeah, he skull yeah. crushes him. And then he kills Sebastian as yeah. well. We don't. And, and the look on his face well, while he's killing him is very interesting it's like yeah he's actually experiencing a whole range of emotions right right he feels anger and like remorse i mean he does you feel like he he does maybe in a certain way feel like he's killing his he is killing like his father or something yeah right Right. but he also hates his father yeah yeah it reminded me a bit of some of those classical statues where you can't really tell if they're like you know it's like the martyrdom of santa Teresa de ambrosio and it's like you know, is this person getting killed by these arrows or are they orgasming? It's like the, he, the look on his face is like triumphant and heartbroken mm-hmm. and terrified. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And he plays it's it. It's the only time where he really seems scared, I th- like looks scared. Right. Yeah. Right. We learn, we don't even see what happens to Sebastian. We just learn that he's been killed by the dispatch that Harrison Ford gets where it's like yep. yeah. they've killed him at Tyrell and then they trace and actually in canon he didn't die oh really yeah Tyrell lives they came out with ugh, this is such useless information they came out with sequels to the book which are actually sequels to the movie okay which tries to stitch the two continuities together because there's quite a bit of discrepancy of course and uh, in the second book Sebastian is one of the characters. Okay. So and so Philip K. Dick wrote these. No, no. but he, they're like, what's the word? Sanctioned. Mm. Well, by his estate. Authorized. Maybe? No, 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 authorized. Yeah, no, he was alive when they were written, I believe. Oh, okay, that makes sense because he spent so much of his life as like a shitty pulp writer. That I mean, he wasn't a shitty writer, but like writing for shitty pulps that he probably was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, kick it to some other new young writer. Deckard basically traces the replicants back to Sebastian's apartment where he and Batty have this final showdown. Pris tries to, like, skull crush him with her thighs. Mostly succeeds, but then she jumps off and he's able to shoot her. When Batty comes back in, realizes and sees her and realizes what's happening. He decides he's going to hunt him down. But as he, that's happening, he feels like death begin to creep over him. Like, his f- fist starts clenching up, so he, like, puts a nail through it to revive, revive himself. At the that end, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But at the end of this chase scene, um, Decker has jumped from one building to the next and is hanging on to this like metal outcropping. And while Batty's giving this whole speech um, about things he's seen, the, what these eyes have seen, he doesn't say eye. He says these eyes. I think that's actually important. Right as Decker just his grip slips and he's about to he's beginning to fall, Batty grabs him by the hand and lifts him and hoists him up. 
And the voiceover explains later on, he's like, maybe he saved me because he loved life so much at that moment that he wouldn't, you know, didn't even want anything to die at all. Decker goes back to his apartment. Edward James almost is there. And he says, you've done a man's job. You've done a man's job. That happens actually on the street outside of. He comes back to Rachel and um, they abscond together. They get out of the city into this like beautiful and there's just like shots of you know a brief shot of them like in a car and then like these like beautiful landscapes so it seems like they it's maybe the first just, time you see the sky first time you see the sky the, the first time you see anything remote first time it's natural like not nighttime like yeah yeah or, yeah or just like hellscape city nightmare which is jarring yeah. because like it's really jarring ending and i you know it's almost it almost feels like a cop out right it almost feels like this is just a tacked on happy ending but then there's it like was, a, but the, it was. Yeah, the, but the studio made also, him. The studio made him do that. And actually, that footage is leftover footage from the opening scene of The Shining. Oh, I thought so. Wait, get what? The oh, fuck get holy out of here. shit! Yeah. I thought so. Get the fuck out of here. That is amazing. According to Wikipedia, that's incredible. That's yeah, incredible. I love it. Oh, I was like, that's I recognize that ever. tree, and it's funny because I saw it and I was like, bum 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 yeah. bum bum yeah. bum. I was totally. like, ah. But yeah, like the the ending that's in all the other cuts basically is when the elevator closes. Yeah, and you hear Edward James Almos's voice saying, yeah. "It's a it's a pity she won't live, but then again, who does?" Yeah. The so the very end, like that last scene, with the tracking or whatever you call that, the shot following the car through the landscape isn't in any of the additions. Right. It's definitely not. But in they the final still leave cut. together. Deckard they and leave together. They get on the elevator. Elevator door and closes. That's, that's that the scene. Of the movie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the difference between this and Minority Report, which had a sort of similar ending, where it's just yeah. like it's like the 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 you know the the, the long um, saccharine bullshit. Well, just like the you know you have the landscape and just like the the pull out shot. Is that what they call? They're called uh, like tracking shot tracking or shot or something. Some kind of shot of a landscape. And it seems to be like that's they're in nature and that's the happy ending. This seemed a lot more like weirdly ethereal to me. Like it's this seemed a little dreamlike in a way. Like this could be a false ending. Yeah, and there there is a feeling of of like yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel real. It's jarring. And there's a reading so it makes of the sense movie. that it is actually tacked on, but it, it it's tacked on in a way that like it's it's still a little unsettling, and I appreciate that. Yeah, and he says, you know, that Rachel doesn't have an expiration date; that she's special, um, and so that they're going to get whatever a lifetime together is going to be. Also, like it should be acknowledged that Rutger Hauer's monologue in that scene when Decker is dying or is about to fall off the building or whatever was improvised. That they gave him like a much longer monologue and he was like, no, this is garbage. And he like went <laughs> home that night and cut a bunch of stuff and came in and did that monologue. That's not improvised. I, I think that he wrote <laughs> the lines himself and then, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a stunning movie. This like, movie is amazing. Incredible visual we, language. We've never, uh, no one, until far we haven't mentioned like the sexy saxophone that's like throughout this entire <laughs> movie. <laughs> Believe me. Now, <laughs> Vangelis. Vangelis is a Vangelis hero. Vangelis who stands astride the world of soundtracks at like a colossus. <laughs> I'm now just going to bequeath unto you my, um, uh, what, what do we call this? The endorsement for the week, uh, which is Vangelis had a band. Wait, hold up. Can we, should we throw it Fine. to endorsements? Yeah, we're throwing it to endorsements. Vangelis, the sexy saxophones 
and his sexy synths and everything else. Apparently, Vangelis also is I apparent on IMDb credited with soundtracking in one episode of Two Broke Girls. <laughs> no, no, look I it love up. Him. No, I love <laughs> look him. it up. Two broke evangelists on two broke girls. <laughs> two, two broke replicants. <laughs> um, two broke humans. Yeah, and wait, who is um, Vangelis? He's like it was like a big eighties soundtrack Vangelis, guy. Or yeah, something? yeah. Most notably, he did this. He won the Academy Award for uh, Chariots, of, Chariots of Fire. Yeah, oh shit, that that's a good song. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. Vangelis, his work before he went out went uh, solo was. I think Vangelis also did the soundtrack for the series Contact, with, not Contact, um, Cosmos with Carl Sagan. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. He was like the go-to synth guy. Yeah. Um, he's the, the sort of guy who popularized the Yamaha CS80, which is like, again, for my music nerds, it is probably the most expensive synthesizer in the world now. It's about 22000 for an old one. So him and Ridley Scott, I mean, just like such a magic combo. But before he, he had a band in the 60s and 70s called Aphrodite's Child. Um, if you want like skull-crushing progressive rock, listen to Aphrodite's Child album 666. <laughs> like, it's a fucking masterpiece. Like it's unbelievable. Like, you'll feel like Tyrell did when Batty was crushing a skull in a good way. <laughs> So, are there final thoughts on this movie before we throw it to endorsements? I'm trying to find the name. Mm, There's a I guy. I sort of. I think I sort of gave up what I how I feel about this and this being like, sort of the just something. This embodies everything about sci-fi in different ways, and the importance of it. Yeah, I mean. So you could cut that. You can splice that in if you want. Well, I think that's going to go at the beginning anyway. All right, whatever. Then I got nothing else. Well, I also think it's it's like a doorway into the next phase of sci-fi, right? So, like, if the 50s was, or, like, the 40s into the 50s was all about, like, imperialism and, like, brave astro men, you know, fighting for a better future tomorrow, um, and then the 60s is sort of, like, this tripped out, I mean, the new wave is what they call it. Ursula K. Le Guin is pretty comfortably in that zone, and it's it's not as sort of aesthetically clear, um, but I guess Dune is also kind of part of it. And then this ushers in the kind of modern era of cyberpunk, which we still are in ish and it's unclear what the next yeah, phase I mean, is. It still resonates. I think this movie has a lot. It still yeah. speaks to us a lot now and it doesn't feel maybe in like some very superficial way concerning the effects that they use and the cinematography, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't feel, I mean, maybe a little dated, but it still feels very relevant. To me. Yeah, I agree. When I was watching it, I was thinking about it a little bit through the lens of... Because I know you said that to me before, Asher, that like you feel like this movie was maybe made by accident. And I do think that this movie is... Well, I mean, there are so many cuts. So that makes you think about it. But like, it's all in the editing. It has like a really artsy feel, especially like the last scene where like the fight scene like there's all these things that are happening where you're kind of like they things don't quite make sense but like they all work together and and things people are saying things that don't quite make literal sense and you get the feeling that maybe there was some original filming of this movie where you could take everything much like everything would make sense together but because of the way it was cut up and put together it feels a lot more uh, obtuse and it's actually more interesting that way the main thing i can think of is like the 
Pris like deciding to do all those flips before she kill she kills Deckard, right? Yeah. It's like why 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 are you doing all? Why don't you just kill him instead of giving him the chance to shoot you while you're doing this <laughs> with his gun? Yeah, that you see, but like it works, you yeah. know. And like there's, I feel like there's just a lot of stuff like that in this movie where it's probably edited in a way that you know really made it work and and gave it a real real like mystique and an air of mystery around it. It feel, yeah, I agree. It, it feels this movie feels dreamlike in a way that not a lot of sci-fi movies do. I mean, I think that's sort of the theme. The whole point is like, how do you tell the difference between a made-up reality and the real reality, or real memory and made-up memory? And I think that's probably not a mistake. That the whole thing feels like it might not actually be happening. Also, I mean. Part of that, and again, to, to keep bringing it back to Alan's initial point about this being an inversion of the hero's journey, is like that can give it a really intense dreamlike feel because as an audience member, we're trained to identify with the hero, identify with their journey, and want to stay with them the whole time. So that even when we're not seeing the hero on screen, their journey should be our primary concern. And it's kind of the opposite of that right where like this time when we're not seeing batty on screen we're wondering what batty is up to right and that makes it Mm. very dreamlike where you know like so many times in a dream the you're having these urgent responses or needs or desires and they're completely like outside of the realm of this sort of journey that you're on in your dream space right where it's like you're following deckard but really there's this undercurrent of an actual urgent thing that you need to be following which is batty's desire to live i don't know uh, perhaps that has something to do with the dreamlike quality of it that we're not following the person that the story is ostensibly we're separated from the actual action yeah exactly i don't know i really like what what rav said about not not what Asher said, but no, I really liked what Raph said about. I really like, don't like what Asher said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like like about the ending. Um, because I, I I like the idea that you know if a studio tells you oh we need you need to have this happy ending, what you can do is make it sort of dreamlike and actually make it too much of just like an, a happy ending, happy ever after ending, where it's like okay, so this makes me kind of call into question like the reality of this whole thing. It's right? too it's too jarring a juxtaposition yeah, yeah. to be credible in the story. And it's just like, you know, someone makes these decisions, right? And someone, and like I, I using footage from The Shining, like I wish I'd known that because I, <laughs> I feel like there's not something intentional, but there's like a hidden metaphor in there for what this is about. <laughs> like in just terms of like, I'm going to reinforce like the isolation, like this is happy ending you want about people connecting and like being together and sharing. I'm going to reinforce the isolation of like one of the, through like one of the most harrowing psychological movies <laughs> ever made. Like it's also shining discarded. Is fucked up. It's also discarded, discarded footage. footage yeah. yeah. I think I've never been scared by a movie before except for The Shining. I don't know, yeah, Sam, sorry, final Sam. thoughts on this? I mean, my biggest takeaway from watching it was, as as for you, Asher, I had never seen it with the voiceover. And I think it made the experience worse for me just because I like I like unanswered questions. And there was too much going on where, like right when there's a long shot and you don't know what the characters are thinking, in comes the narration to sort of, 
I'll unwind it for you and like open up the book and say, this is what I'm thinking here. And I kind of enjoy more. I think like, Oh, I wonder what he's thinking here. Um, so that would be one big thing for me. Also the whole question of whether or not he's a replicant, I think is like one of the big like fan questions in sci-fi. Yeah. And it's sort of meaningless. Yeah. It's definitely meaningless. Yeah. Like I think it kind of misses the point. Oh yeah. Of the whole story to ask that question. Like I, cause I don't care if he is or he isn't people. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm saying I'm talking so much as episode. I think it's such a fascinating movie, okay. but yeah, I mean like I feel this way that people get obsessed with like figuring out the movie right. when you know, it's the being there principle, right? Yeah, it's, it's like it's, it's it's what you're shown, and it's like you know. I think it's like you should be okay with there being ambiguity. There should be you should be okay with there being some questions about this. Like you don't have to get the answer, but well, even also, more so, it's the the superposition of both states, right? It's like if you can if you can do a reading of this movie where he is a replicant, and you can do a reading of this movie where he isn't a replicant then both of those readings exist and there's like a depth to this movie that is, well, I sort of think I you're still know. missing it. Like the thing I'm trying to say is that like the point is that it doesn't matter that okay. they're the same, that like a replicant is just a human that was grown instead right. of right. birthed. Right. Oh yeah. People dumb, dumb. Yeah. yeah. So like, even if you knew <laughs> people dumb, dumb, <laughs> so I just don't see how it matters. Like it's an interesting question. Is yeah, he? Yeah, I get what you say. It's missing the point. Yeah, that they're not really different. Like you shouldn't yeah. care. The point of the movie is that you shouldn't care which he is. Right. He's right. Still a creature with agency. Another cool thing about this movie, I think, is that like you often, I think, see it at lists of like the top 100 movies of all time. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a testament to how good the ideas were in this movie and how long lasting like the themes were that it can be on those lists despite lots of flaws right and like, having <laughs> been a commercial dud in america at least well i'm not sure that that matters right for whether or not it's i mean i don't know what you mean what, what i mean to say is like lists. it was like critically when it came out people were very mixed about it mm. and commercially it didn't do super well so it's like i think it for the most part of the movies that occupy those lists are movies that were appreciated when they came out and the way that sort of right. the release of movies is structured is like if something doesn't take off right away obviously less so then than now it's kind of dead that's kind of it mm. so i think that this movie was not panned, but it wasn't lauded when it came out. And the fact that it's transcended and made its way into the sort of... Yeah. I mean, yeah, most movies on there are sort of very polished. Like, it's sort of like filmmakers who are working at the peak of their career with a lot of studio backing, like making, you know, movies that were really kind of holistically good. And and Blade Runner kind of fails, I think, in certain respects. Like, it's I think Harrison Ford's acting is just not that great. I think the... The narration yeah, is not that good. It's kind of like in jo- in uh, in the Matrix. In the Matrix, like yeah. yeah, his acting is kind of stiff. But I mean, we know that he can act. We've seen him play other roles. Uh-huh. <laughs> Ted, <laughs> yeah, the heart of the wise. But still, I don't know. I think the sexy sex doesn't age well. No, that that's a little <laughs> goofy. Some of the evangelist stuff that sounds. I don't know. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. I think that that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like. John Carpenter soundtracks like we talked about last week where it still sounds dope. I th- I think it does, but I can recognize why this is not for everybody. Did you talk about Vangelist? Or I like Vangelist. Yeah. I'm oh, I Vangelist. thought it was incredible. Yeah. It's, it's I, I dated it. I love for it. sure, but it's not bad. 
it aesthetically lines up so perfectly with the movie in that this movie is a vision of a future of perfected technology gone to rot. And I think that Vangelis's music or the Vangelis score in a lot of ways is that ultimate expression of like super futuristic music when synths were kind of in like their not infancy, but toddlerhood. I don't know. I, I just to me, there's a mirror between the two of just like the future is dirty and broken and fucked up. And like this is like synth music that's trying to be inhuman, but it's not perfectly inhuman like Kraftwerk or John Carpenter. It sounds like a stretched out piece of tape. Like there's there's messed up shit to it. I liked it. I'm with you on this raft that I dig Vangelis, but I'll probably cut that. Aphrodite's hole. child. I haven't heard that yet. Oh, my God. I'll I don't think to. you're going to like it. I probably won't. There's one. It's a double album, 666. There's one 25-minute song called All the Seats Were Occupied, which is like one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big It's a big Jesus. ask. So, you got to be ready oh, yeah, for Yeah, I watched. I, I started listening to the um, the album you recommended. Oh, yeah. The History of Intergalactic. Interplanetary Folk Music. Shit or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Donkeys I got, bearing cups. I got about two-thirds of the way through the first song. <laughs> what the fuck? You serious? Yeah. All right, whatever. It's I definitely came away thinking I like, like I will it. listen to this again. All right. So I'm not that's, I haven't that's given progress. up. I'm just telling you I had a tough time with the first track. Okay, that's fine. Cool. So, should we throw it to endorsements? I'll cut yours in now. Sam, what Can do you, you got? Can you cut mine in now? <laughs> Sam, what do you got? This book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Mm. Well worth a read. I figured it would good. be bananas because you've been sitting here chowing on bananas. <laughs> oh, also bananas. Yeah. Um, this week I'm going to endorse something pretty nerdy that I've been reading. Uh, this book, The Name of the Wind by oh. Patrick Rothfuss. Oh, Sam is so really. Good. It's so oh. I don't know. So far, it's so not like. Comfortable. It's not ending my life. It's a wet spot. Great. Great. <laughs> 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 I'm like 50 pages into it. It's. It's pretty good. It's a really quick read, and it's, I just—it's my favorite fantasy novel of all time. Wow, Easily, by far. Yeah, it's so far. I I just you know I love a good plot. Like I just it, that's such a dickhead thing to say. Like I'm the kind of guy who loves plot. It's like oh yeah, you and every other human that's ever lived. Good People job. Who read. When I read, I like a plot. I like <laughs> characters. I my like favorite thing about stories is words. Yeah. I just. <laughs> I like the pages to be in numerical order. <laughs> I just <laughs> I, I have think letters on them. We don't give enough credit to people who are good at constructing narratives that He's make really us good, want yeah. to push and yeah. keep going. Like, also, like I that think that that's is awesome. How far in are you? Fifty pages. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure it's gonna. Get, it's a like treat. a million pages. It, the second book is not as good, but I think it might be suffering from middle child. I'm still waiting on the third book. And sorry to hijack your endorsement a little bit. No, please. There is a fourth work, which is called The Slow Regard of Silent Things, which wait until you've read the whole first book before you look at it. But it's basically like a hundred page long stream of consciousness poem. Okay. About like a weird, from the point of view of one of the characters in the first book. In the first book. Okay. And it's like really weird and not. It's like not the way stories are normally told, and it's extremely compelling. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I I like this book so far. It's it's pushing me. I'm excited to see where it goes. I just I like a when you can tell when something is like just a well executed piece of plot and storytelling like that. I have a, a lot of like makes me feel good. 
uh, especially when I'm in the middle of like, you know, 50 other stupid student essays that are just like trash. And I'm like, I need something that just gets me through the pages. Come on, push. That guy is a um, great writer. Alan, what do you got? Nothing. I, I really can't think of anything. Uh, Here's a round table. You're wearing. Here's a round table. Cake or pie? So that's going to do it for season one, guys. Uh, we're going to... Uh. Take, Are we done? I mean, I I think no, I I'm mean, hungry. With, with the show, yeah, an hour ago, right? No, no, no. I think well, that's that's gonna do it for season one, guys. Yeah, we're gonna take a break and start taping season two, and we'll be releasing episodes in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, donate we will to our be Patreon. On a break. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll <laughs> also be working on our new Patreon. Yeah, the yeah. the defund, anti Harvard defund HBS. <laughs> yeah, defund Harvard Business School Patreon dot gov. Um, Got it. Yeah, so until then, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Asher Lack. At Highly Affiligent. At Case of Piles. And eternally regretfully, at Have a Cool Penis. <laughs> and you can follow the show uh, at Robot House Pod. And um, until soon, thanks so much for tuning in to season one, guys. Thank you. Raph, you know you can change your Twitter handle, right? I don't know that. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.